verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I want to uh, uh, begin uh, a little bit with a, a question, a uh, little bit of a question for our kids. Uh, you may have noticed this, uh, I don't know if you have, I have, that almost every single movie made in Hollywood these days is like some kind of superpower, whether it is a Jedi superpower or a wizarding superpower or some kind of super superpower with superhero uh, movies of, of the Avenger type. So I want to ask you kids this morning, uh, who is your favorite superhero? You can call it out. Who's your favorite superhero? Batman. I like Batman. I like Batman a lot. He's got great superpowers, kind of, depending on how you define superpowers. He's a great superhero. What is it? Spider-Man. He's got great superpowers. Iron Man, great superpowers too. The superpowers of money and superpowered intellect. We, we are a culture that is obsessed in some ways, in some good ways, and in some negative ways with power. Just the idea of power, what power can do. We, uh, you would uh, have probably heard the question at some point in time, uh, if you could have any kind of superpower, like what would it be? Some people are like, oh, I'd love to see through walls, or I'd love to do whatever. Uh, you fill in the blank. Uh, for me, I would love to have, this has nothing to do with anything that we're going towards this morning, but I would love just to have the superpower to see things as they truly are. I, I feel like uh, so often I just get confused. There's so much information. There's so many competing narratives out there in the world. I would just love to have the superpower of wisdom to know uh, how to see things as they truly are and speak of them in like a clear way. That would be my like favorite superpower. I would love to have that. So in a world that is kind of obsessed with power, I think that there are some good ways, there are some fun ways like movies that we can kind of focus on that, but I do think that the focus on power, the word power, the thing power, has actually metastasized in our culture into something of a worldview, of a meta-narrative. And this isn't something that's necessarily new, uh, but it is something that I think has taken on new forms. Uh, back in the mid-1900s, uh, there was a French philosopher named Michel Foucault. And Michel Foucault like, devoted his life to thinking about power and knowledge and how those things fit together. Um, and, and in so many different ways, uh, along with a lot of other philosophers, Michel Foucault took his place in a contingent of people over the last century that has really built out a narrative, a meta-narrative, a way of viewing and explaining the world that centers on and thinks about power. Michel Foucault has had uh, his fingerprints in the realm of psychology, the realm of sociology. He's had his fingerprints on cultural and uh, literature 
literature studies in the university. And all of those things have kind of coalesced into something that you might have even heard of. It's called critical theory. It, it, it's a, it's a, it, it, you know, there's some maybe even good things about critical theory, but at, at its essence, what critical theory is, is a worldview, a way of explaining things that tries to look and examine everything in this world through a lens of power. Uh, you, you can't take a look at, uh, uh, you know, uh, William Shakespeare on his own rights. You really kind of have to think about, like, the power dynamics of what was happening at that time, allowing him to write. You can't look at Bach. You can't look at, like, his music just on its own. You really have to evaluate the kind of world that that was in. This is kind of a critical way of looking at everything. And despite the fact that there are some things for us to glean from that kind of worldview, what I would tell you is, is that as far as I can tell, the focus on power as a worldview, as a way of explaining really everything, is really an exercise in trying to dismantle, deconstruct, and destroy a lot of things. You may have even heard some of those words come up in conversations about, well, I'm really trying to deconstruct this. I'm trying to figure this thing out by taking it apart to its bare bones, to its essence. And a lot of times what that kind of distills itself down into is evaluating power structures. This is going to sound familiar, even for those of us who are not necessarily caught up in whatever's going on in culture, you're going to hear of it. But it's not just, here's what I want you to get. I don't want you to just think of this as like some kind of ethereal philosophy. I have a friend named Andrew. Uh, Andrew and I grew up, we went to high school together, uh, we, played, uh, we played tennis uh, together, we were actually on a doubles uh, team in high school. Uh, Andrew, despite the fact that we've been separated by geography and a lot of time, uh, is one of my favorite people in this world, and he is wicked smart. He's our val- he was our valedictorian in high school, uh, and uh, he's come into town over uh, the last uh, 10 years, and we always try to meet up. And the second to last time that he came in, he uh, announced something that was like really surprising and really encouraging to me, and that was that he had been reading the Bible. Now, this is a guy that um, has not just been like, uh, uh, you know, an atheist, he's been anti-theist for as long as I've known him. He's had like a joyful disposition against God. I mean, that's really, we've had dozens, maybe even hundreds at this point, conversations about who Jesus is. This is a person that I've just evangelized over the course of many years. And so when he announced to me that he was reading through the whole of the Bible, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is what I've like prayed for for decades now. But, but here's, here's why he was reading the Bible. The, the more that he explained to me why he was reading the Bible, he was going back through it using this kind of critical theory to evaluate what was going on in uh, ancient Israel and how the leaders were, you know, uh, groping for power and like, you know, hoovering up power and using that to lord over other people. He, he uh, I, thanks be to God, he was reading scripture. But he was, and by his own admission, he was reading back through it to identify structures of power. He was reading through it to identify structures of power. Here's what we get to do this morning. We get to take a look at Haggai chapter 2, and we get to look at the real power. Where is the real power? 
That, that, that's what we need to be concerned about as well. It doesn't just need to be this world out there that's worried about power. We need to worry about power. And here, we actually see something of it in Haggai chapter 2. So I, I would that you would uh, stay there with me in Haggai. Don't look at me as much as you are looking at the word this morning. Because here is what we are going to discover. We're going to discover that uh, as any true artist will tell you, as any creative type will tell you, it takes a lot more uh, just uh, creative uh, kind of power to create something. Uh, it, it takes a lot more uh, uh, gumption and intellect and stick to to create things. It takes very little of that to destroy things. And what God is going to tell us here is that there is a kingdom-shaking, kingdom-making power in worship. There's a kingdom shaking and king making power in worship. So we've been talking about uh, worship through uh, Haggai, the book of Haggai. And this morning we're going to discover that worship has power. But there's three things that we've got to kind of go through in order to get there this morning. The first thing that we've got to understand is the curse of kinglessness. The curse of kinglessness. The second thing that we've got to understand is the power of worshipfulness. And the third is the coming coronation. That's where we're headed this morning. So uh, before we can kind of get there, we need to know and understand something of the context. So maybe you're a guest with us this morning or you've missed a few of the, uh, the, the things that we've been learning together as a group of people as we've been going through Haggai. Here's what you need to know about the book of Haggai. God's people return to God's place by God's providence after God's discipline. The whole of Israel had fallen into disobedience. God warned them and warned them and warned them and said, if you're not going to obey, if you're not going to bring me glory, if you're not going to love me, I'm going to put you into exile. And so he did that. But now he's brought them out of exile, out of his discipline, and he's put them back in his place and commanded them to rebuild the temple. Now, when they got there, they did not initially really get started all that much on the temple. They started building their house, building their uh, economy. They tried looking at these things. And last week, what we discovered was that a good priest lays a foundation of worshipful blessing. Their worship had been broken. They were unfruitful. But once they started obeying, God said this to them. He said, from this day on, I will bless you. Now that you have laid the foundation of worship, I will bless you. This morning, what we're going to discuss is the power that comes from that. Verse 20 says, the Lord, word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. Now that might be a little confusing because it seems like it's uh, come a lot in this book. But the word of the Lord has come a lot. So why is he saying the second time? Look, it says on the 24th day of the month. If you look back at verse 10, it's the same day that the last word of the Lord had come to the priest. Now it's coming to someone else. It's not coming to the Israeli priests of the day, the Levites of the day. This time, the, world, the Lord says to Haggai, go to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. And what we discover here is the curse of kinglessness. The curse of kinglessness. We need to know something about Zerubbabel in order to understand this first point. It says that he was the governor of Judah. Now, now, if you've read through the Old Testament, this is going to be kind of a new phrase. There weren't a whole lot of governors of Judah. There were a lot of kings of Judah. Why is that? It's because Judah was the kingly tribe. 
So whereas like the Levites were the priestly tribe, they were the ones that were kind of in charge of worship, Zerubbabel was actually a part of the tribe of Judah where the kings came from. This would have been where David the king came from. This tribe would have been the kingly tribe. So he's the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel was the governor of his people that was installed by, not God, that answered to, not necessarily God, but answered to the Syrian king in an earthly way. So don't hear me say that he didn't answer to God. He certainly did. But the Persians who had come and taken them out of uh, where they were in exile and put them back, like allowed them to go back to their place, would have actually had a king over the kings and over the governors of all of these different kingdoms. And Zerubbabel had been installed by the Syrian king as the governor over the people. There was no king of Judah And this was a constant reminder both to Zerubbabel and to God's people that God had removed this blessing from his people to have a king. He had removed that blessing. They were ruled in every literal sense by a godless people, and they were not allowed to rule themselves. So they were back in God's place as God's people. They were rebuilding God's house, but they didn't have God's king with them. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24, starting in verse 24, I want to read this just so that we have some context here uh, for us. So in verse 22, verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord, keep in mind that this is when Israel was in stark disobedience to God. As I live, declares the Lord, through Koniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. I mean, pretty stark words. What is he saying about the signet ring? He's saying that he's taking the kingship that was in Judah, that was in God's people. He's actually taking them and he's hurling them away. There's no more kings for Israel. This was actually a sign of God's judgment against them. There was no king for Jerusalem. This was judgment Jeremiah goes on to say this of those shepherds. He says, Woe to you shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. I will attend your evil. He's going to deal with the evil. God the Father removes that signet ring and there are no more kings and he sends them into exile. They are cursed. Without a king or government of their own, what are they? They are vulnerable. They feel, in some sense, illegitimate. They feel the chaos kind of brewing around them. They feel danger by being ruled by others. And here's the point. It's easy for us to go back into the Old Testament and go, man, I've never had a king in my life. Like, how do I, how do I kind of, like, understand this kinglessness as a curse? Here's the truth. This, was, this is Andrew's problem. This is Andrew, my friend's problem. This is our problem. If we are kingless... We are in danger, we are vulnerable, 
We're prone to anxieties and fears because anything from outside of us can come in and seek and destroy and come and take us away. Anything outside of us can come and hurl us into some kind of curse, some kind of judgment. If you are living in a kingless nation, in a word, you're in danger. Here's what I see a lot here in our culture. Here's what I see a lot in me, frankly is a lot of desire for independence. And I don't mean like independence as a nation. What I mean is I don't want you to tread on my freedoms for me. I want to be an individual like me. I want to be genuine and authentic like me. I don't want anything outside of me to tell me what to do. And that kind of individualism is kingless. Or to the extent that it has a king, I am the king of my own skull-sized kingdom. And you are too. When we take up this kind of atomization of individuality, if we don't see ourselves as part of something bigger, part of something greater, with a greater, bigger king, keeping the chaos at bay, keeping us safe, when we are kingless, we are under curse, we are under danger, we are under judgment. So we have to understand something of what Israel is going through, but not just Israel, we have to understand ourselves. Without a king outside of yourself, there are no limits to your pleasure-seeking. Your pleasure-seeking will carry you off into uncharted territories when there is nothing bigger than self. You will be ruled by a million things that seek to dismember you and tear you apart. Kinglessness is like a child without parents. Kinglessness is like a child without parents. So I want to ask you a question this morning that I, if you are a note taker, write it down. Think about it. Think critically about it. What areas of your life are you trying to live in a kingless way? What areas are you trying to avoid the kingship of a good God? How are you trying to live in a kingless world? However many bad shepherds and however much they were in exile, Zerubbabel in Zechariah verse 6, God says that he will put his spirit on Zerubbabel and make him a great mountain. Such a great mountain that everything else will seem as a plain around them. Now, here's, here's how crazy that statement is. When God is speaking to uh, Zerubbabel uh, through uh, the prophet Zechariah, uh, I, I mean, they were just nothing. They were a remnant of a people that had come back to this, uh, relatively speaking, inconsequential place. And God says, I'm going to make you, Zerubbabel, like a mountain so big that all of the kingdoms of this world will seem like a plain right next to you. And I'm going to put a little capsule. Go read Zechariah and his words to Zerubbabel. It's astonishing, the promises that are made there. But here's what we need to know. What was God doing in Zerubbabel? He was displaying the power of worshipfulness. So the first thing that we have to understand is the curse of kinglessness. The second thing we have to understand is the power of worshipfulness. The hands of Zerubbabel there in Zechariah uh, says that he has laid the foundation for the temple. He has created a place for worship. And it says that his hands shall complete it. So the, the temple wasn't completed at this point. But what God is promising Zerubbabel is not only did you set the foundation, not only were you using the plumb line, 
for the foundation, but I'm going to finish the temple through you. That had to have been immensely encouraging to Zerubbabel, for God to show up in the midst of a very chaotic, very dangerous world, and for him to make promises like that. And all of it was because of the worshipfulness. Look in verse 21. He makes additional promises to Zerubbabel. He says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Verse 22 says, I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of all the nations, all because of one thing, all because of worship, all because of Zerubbabel's obedience to lead Israel toward building God's house in his place of worship. Worship is powerful. We don't often think of it that way, right? We kind of come in, maybe we come and attend pretty casually. We come without any sort of expectation. We live our lives rather than worshipfully. We kind of like attach it in to our lives. We don't think about it in this way, that worship has power. But here's what we get from Haggai. God is going to take the worship of his kingless people and he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. God is going to take the worship of his kingless people and he's going to overthrow the thrones of the kingdom. God is going to take the worship of his kingless people and destroy the strength of nations. Notice, it's the throne of kingdoms. Look at it with me there in that verse. It's the throne of kingdoms, not the thrones of kingdoms. We, we can understand this in a couple of different ways at the same time. First and foremost, what did we already say about the Persian king? Persia had a couple of different kings that kind of came along. Cyrus, he, uh, um, Artaxerxes was one of them. We're told Darius is one of these kings. And, and in Persia, he was referred to as the king of kings. There were all of these conquered nations that all maybe had their governors or kings, but they weren't allowed to really rule because there was a king of kings in Persia. And here, God is promising Zerubbabel that he is about to shake the heavens and the earth, shake the kingdoms of the earth, shake the nations of the earth, and he's going to overthrow the throne, the throne of the kingdoms of earth. So in one sense, he's talking, about uh, talking not about Babylon, but about uh, Persia. He's saying, I'm going to shake all of these people that are ruling over you. But there's another thing. I think that it's, it's referring to something else, because here's the truth. Not in Zerubbabel's time do we see this come to fruition. We don't see a shaking of all of the nations. We don't see Israel being able to uh, rule over itself, because by the time that Jesus comes along, a few hundred years later, who are they being ruled by? Themselves? No, no, no. Rome. They're being ruled by Rome. And here God is saying, I'm going to overthrow the throne of these kingdoms. He's talking about a spiritual throne. He's talking about Satan, that one who is the ruler of the world, who's sitting on the throne, who is the uh, prince of the power of the air, that uh, person, uh, that, de uh, that, that uh, uh, spirit that we rail against, that one who is uh, prowling around like a roaring lion. What God is saying is, is that he is going to use the worship, he's going to use the faithfulness, he's going to use the obedience of Zerubbabel to dethrone Satan. That's the promise that he's making here. The power of 
His worshipfulness is outstanding. And I wonder if you can imagine if you were Zerubbabel, what this would have meant to you, how you would have taken this. The power of worship is stronger than any circumstances. It can throw, overthrow any throne. The power of worship is stronger than any evil in this world. And I want you to think about that. To think about your worship as having this kind of power. Do, do you think in that term? I, I started to mention it earlier. Like, did you come here this morning expecting that worship had the same sweeping, regenerative power as if it were an atom bomb, like turned inside out, and rather than reaping destruction across this city, that there would be a sweep of color and life and of kingdom? I wonder if you came here thinking this morning that all of those things that are like bearing down on your soul, that are entrapping your soul, that are bringing you fear and anxiety, that your worship actually had the power to dethrone that kind of king in your life and turn everything inside out for the glory of God and for your good. Do you think of worship like that? Do we at City Church think of worship like that? That's why we're in Haggai. I'm not going to lie to you. Our elders want to see a revival of joyful worship, a revival of joyful worship, a revival, a coming to life in this people, and we want to see it happen through joyful worship. We're in Haggai to reorient our hearts around worship. On Sunday, yes. Only on Sunday, not in your life. We want to see a revival of joyful worship. Why? Because there's power. There's power in worship. Kingdom shaking, king making power in worship. I wonder if you believe it. But God doesn't just say that he's, uh, that the thrones of kingdoms will be shaking. He says that he's going to use him as a king maker. Where do I see that? Verse 23. Find it with me. I'm going to pause. I want everybody's eyes on what God is doing and why he is doing it. Verse 23, what does it say? On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all of these celestial armies, that's what that word hosts mean, declares the Lord of hosts, on that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of what? The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of spiritual armies. I'm going to take you, O Zerubbabel, and make you into a signet ring. What is a signet ring? We all maybe have like a, a sense of what it might be. It's something that maybe you use to like press into a seal. Here's what a signet ring was. It was a declaration of power and authority. It was something that symbolized kingly authority. And what God is saying is, is that uh, I'm going to take you, O Zerubbabel, and I'm going to use you as the sign of kingly authority. A king doesn't only wear it, he actually uses it to seal decrees, and God is saying, I'm going to use you like that Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Why does he keep on referring to Zerubbabel as the son of Shealtiel? Why does he keep on making 
uh, so much of this line that Zerubbabel came from. Because Shealtiel, his father, was from the tribe of Judah. Zerubbabel was from the kingly tribe. But remember the promise that God made back in Jeremiah that nobody, nobody, no way, no how. He'd been so offended that he took that signet ring off from Israel and he said, no more kings. No more kings. None of your people are going to sit on this throne, the throne of David, anymore. And that had to have been terrifying to the people of Israel. Why? Because God had made all of these amazing promises about the one who would come and sit on an eternal throne, the eternal throne of David. This must have been just a terrifying thing. And yet now, after all of this question, after all of this worry, after all of this anxiety, what's going on? God is coming and he is speaking He's declaring, he's talking over and over to his priest, to Haggai, to all of the people collected, and now to Zerubbabel, and he's making this magnificent, amazing promise that he's going to use Zerubbabel as the signet ring. Is he going to put the signet ring back on Zerubbabel's finger? Zerubbabel becomes the signet ring. What a mysterious thing for him to say. But here's what we know. We know that it must have been outrageously encouraging. Why? Because the God of this universe speaks to Zerubbabel and he says, I see you. My people, you thought that I had forgotten about you. I see you. Zerubbabel. You have the eyes of the entire nation wondering, what is going to become of us? You're our governor. We know that you're from the line of Judah. We know that you're not king yet. We're not able to rule over ourselves. We've got our eyes on you. Zerubbabel had to have had an outrageous amount of pressure and expectation sitting on his shoulders. And what God does is he breaks the silence and he says, I see you. I see your worship. I see your obedience. I see your leadership, and I'm going to honor it. And what does he say to him? He says, I'm going to change the world with you. I'm going to change the world on that day, verse 23 says. On that day, I have chosen you as the sign and the seal for this kingdom. Where is all of this going? You remember a few weeks ago, if you were here uh, Andrew did this really, I think, very powerful thing. He, he was trying to uh, express where is the power, where is this going, what is the kingdom, and he just picks up a few pages of scripture, and he just says, this is all that existed between Zerubbabel, between Haggai, between Zechariah the prophet, between God's people and Jesus. If you want to, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 1, because what we're about to see is that signet ring. We're about to see God put that signet ring back on a king's finger. We're not going to read all of these names, not the least because I can't pronounce all of them. But, but we're going to read a few of them so that you can see what's happening here. It says in verse 6, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father. And then you get this list of names all the way down to Jeconi, 
in verse 11. Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah at the time of the deportation. So Jeconiah would have been sent out with this deportation to Babylon. And then verse 12 says this, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Ebdub, and so on and so on, until at the end of verse 16, it says that uh, uh, Matthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Zerubbabel is a signet ring. It's the sign of kingship, the sign of kinghood. This kingless people, this cursed and kingless people has a king. God is making good on his promises to seat on the throne of David an everlasting king. And Zerubbabel gets his name tied in with the glorious list and lineage of all of these kings that lead up to the one and final king. Was there a king from the time that they went into Babylon, into exile in Babylon until the time of Judah, uh, Jesus? No. Why? Because God was creating expectation for the son of promise. Zerubbabel was not a king, but he was a faithful, line-holding, king, uh, kingly lineage holding for the one true king of Jesus. God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel verse 7 is this, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is he talking to David? Yeah. Is he talking about more than David? Yeah. David can't sit on a forever throne. He's a man. Only Jesus can. So who is this son of David? Who is the kingly lineage, the descendant of Zerubbabel? Who is seated on the forever throne? Matthew chapter 27 says this, And over his head they put the charge against him. Do you remember what the charge was against Jesus? Do you remember what they hung over his head in mockery, in cruel but truthful mockery? What was the charge? What was the charge that they levied against this man, Jesus? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Zerubbabel is in this line and placing the signet ring on this forever king of the Jews, Jesus. John chapter 20 says this, Jesus is, is talking after the resurrection. He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus is saying, the cross was not my throne. I have, the, I have the signet ring. I have all of the power. Every nation on earth has been made a footstool for me. Where am I going? To hang around here? To, to hang on a cross, to hang out in some tomb? No way. He rose from the grave so that he could ascend to his father, your father, so that he could ascend to his God, your God. And now Jesus is sitting at the right 
hand of the Father. Jesus is sitting on a throne of glory with light emanating from his throne, with flashes of lightning, with true, complete power and authority. Why? Because Zerubbabel led people to worship. Worship has power. It has kingdom-shaking, king-making kinds of power. So what I want to do this morning is call you into that kind of worship. I want to, for us to understand in some sense that Zerubbabel, the signet ring, attests to and witnesses to the power of King Jesus. And I want for that to shape our worship. I want for us to understand that what we're doing here is significant. What you do in your life is significant. Reading the word in the mornings has power. Singing songs on the way to work has power. Talking to your kids about Jesus and bringing them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord has power. Telling truth rather than lies has power. It is worship. Taking what you earn and not what you steal has power because it's worship. Using the name of Jesus in conversation and evangelizing to people and telling them about the one true king has power because it's worship. Your life will be powerless if you are kingless. But if you have a king, it will have power, everlasting power. And you are able to do that through worship. Do you want to lead a consequential life? Do you want power? Not the way that everybody else is searching for power and prestige and money, fame, acclaim, all of these things. If you follow Jesus, you will have probably none of those things. You might be relegated to a life of subsistence, barely getting by, but you will have power. The power of the one true king who is sitting on a throne and who makes you a co-heir, a co-conqueror, a co-ruler in his kingdom, you will have power. And the way to exercise, the way to get that power is through worshiping the one who has power. So I want to close in this and then I'm going to pray for us. If the God of this universe took the worship of his kingless people and shook the heavens and the earth and overthrew the throne of Satan and sin and unjust rulers of unjust kingdoms. If the God of this universe used his kingless people and used the worship of his people to destroy nations and make them a footstool under the feet of Jesus, what great works can be accomplished through your worship today? There is kingdom-shaking, king-making power in your worship. Let me pray that that would be true for City Church. God and Father, we see the signet ring. We see Zerubbabel, even just in this small way, attributing your glory to your son, Jesus. He is in the line. He is in the line of power. He is seated on the throne of David eternally. He is there. We believe it. Father, I pray that you would allow for the people of City Church to believe it so wholeheartedly 
that they can't help but speak about the things that they have seen and heard. They can't help but live in lives of obedient worship, powerful worship to you. Father, if there is anybody here this day who has never truly believed in the powerful King and who has never worshipped him in spirit and truth and in power. Father, I pray that you would be calling them into the kingdom, calling them to see the signet ring of power, the prophetic word of power, to see Jesus seated on a throne of glory. Father, I pray that you would allow for people who have never believed that, never experienced the power of worship to come in to your powerful kingdom under your powerful king today. Father, I believe that you can change everything. You can change the world and you choose to do it through your people. Father, would you once again shake heavens and earth? Would you destroy the thrones of power in kingdoms, these miniature, meaningless, menial kingdoms that we try to build in our lives, would you just destroy those things so that past the rubble we can get a clear view of Jesus, our Savior? Father, your glorious grace precedes all things. So we ask today that we would worship you in power. Enable and fan this word into flame in our lives and allow for us to worship in power. Allow us to sing in power, give in power, take communion in power. Or would we disciple in power? Would we make and grow disciples in power? Lord, would we receive power in the Holy Spirit by your word? Would we proclaim power Lord, would we not let this world dictate to us what we think that power is? Would you show us in Jesus? Lord, we pray these things in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.